I want to begin today with a list of names. And as I read these, think about what you know of these men. Shemua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Emil, Sether, Nabi, and Guel. Okay, test time. Other than there are hard names to pronounce, uh, if you had to write an essay on these men, what would you say? What's that? You guys are going, I don't even know who these guys are. <laughs> they're, they're men who are forgotten because they forgot about God. There are two other names that go with this list, and as I read these names, I think you'll recognize them, Joshua and Caleb. These are the 12 spies who were sent into the land of Israel before God gave it to his people. They're, they're the names of the 12 spies. The first 10, few remember, but the last two, most know. Joshua became the commander of the nation of Israel. There's a, a book in the Old Testament that is named after him. His counterpart, Caleb, is one that is also remembered, but maybe not as well by many. So today I want to remind you of Caleb and the courage he had Courage that we would all do well to have in our own lives. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Numbers. Numbers is in the Old Testament near the beginning. You'll go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers chapter 13 is where we're going to begin today in verses 1 through 3. It tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send out a man from each of his father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent, out from, uh, the, sent them out from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now, if we were to keep reading in verses 4 through 16, it's kind of like reading the pages of a phone book as we see the fathers and the families, and I don't think that's going to change anybody's life this morning, so I'm going to skip over that and pick up the command in verses 17 through 27 that the spies were given. When Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it, is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob to Labo Hamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where Ahaman and, and Shii and, and Talmi, the, the descendants of Anak were there. Now, Anak are the descendants, they're giants from the line of the Nephilim. If you've read through the book of Genesis, you remember there was a, a terrible situation where some of the fallen angels cohabitated with some of the women on earth. And it created this super race, these giants. And these are the Nephilim and Anak and his, his line have come out of this. It says, then the spies came up out of the valley of Eshkol. From there, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh 
at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. I think there's a focus on the fruit of the land here because if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus and the people as they travel through the wilderness, all the grumbling that was going on, we we see a snapshot of that in Numbers chapter 11 where in verses 4 through 6 it tells us, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt. Yeah, it was free, wasn't it? They were slaves in the land and they had to perform labor. And, and yet they say, we remember the cucumbers and, and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. The word manna literally means, what is it? Manna, what is it? When, when God fed the people of Israel, he provided, you'll remember, this miraculous bread from heaven. As they wandered in the wilderness, each morning there was this, this manna on the ground. And as they picked it up and they ate it, the, the scriptures describe it as being a very light, sweet-tasting bread. And as people tasted it, they said, Manna, this is good, what is it? And, and nobody knew it was bread from God. And, and yet here, they forgot what a blessing it is. They're, they've turned from complaining and saying, this is all we've got, this great bread from heaven that shows up every morning miraculously. God doesn't take care of us. How many of us do that with the blessings that God gives to us? How have we, have we forgotten just his great care and his provision for us. Well, these were the people. And to silence their complaining, God wants them to see what is waiting for them in the promised land. As, as they look at the produce of the promised land, there are figs, there are pomegranates, and there are grapes, a cluster so large, it has to be carried on a pole between two men. Imagine the, the produce. I mean, if you were to look at that, would you, would you say, I don't know if the land's very good that God's going to give to us. Or would you say, wow, look at what's waiting for us. Let's go and get it. But instead of seeing the plenty of the land, it was soon followed by paralysis because the rest of the report fills them with fear. Look at Numbers 13, 28 through 31. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Remember those guys? Amalekite is living in the land of the Negev. And the the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and and by the side of the Jordan. And and suddenly as they're hearing the report of all these these enemies that they're going to have to take on, there's fear and there's murmuring. Verse 30 says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, the other 10 spies, said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Now, do you remember the mission they were given? 
The mission they were given was to go into the land, to scout it out, to come back with a report on the cities, the people, the fortifications, the, the fruit of the land. They were never told to decide if they could take it. Was that in, in the instructions? They were told to simply come back and report what is there. God had already said in verse 2, he was going to give them the land. There was no doubt that God would fulfill his promise. He promised it and he would fulfill it. It was a promise that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. If you read Genesis 15 and verses 18 through 21, there Abraham was given the promise that this would be the land that would be given to his descendants. When God made this promise, Abraham believed it. He went out and he bought a field in that land that was owned by the foreigners at the time. And it was in that field where he buried his wife, Sarah. Not only was Sarah buried there, but so too was Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. These are the forefathers of the nation of Israel. These are the matriarchs of the nation of Israel. The people were told, this is the land God will give you. Your forefathers are already buried there. Just go and get it. Look at the faith of their fathers and the promises of God. But rather than look at that, the the people said, all we can see are the giants that are in the land. The question wasn't how big are the people that are there. The question was how big was their God? It wasn't how big are the people. It was how big is their God? God had already set them free from slavery in Egypt the miraculous deliverance through the plagues. God had parted the Red Sea and had wiped out the army of Pharaoh as he pursued the nation. God had brought them through the wilderness and was feeding them this manna every day. But suddenly they forgot all these things. And when these 10 spies give their report, they had their facts right, but they forgot their faith. That was true. There were some big, bad people in the land but they were forgetting how big their God was. Now, Joshua and Caleb had the same facts, but they also had faith. They didn't minimize the problems, but instead they magnified God. They said, look, God said he would give us the land. We can trust God. When you face problems in your own life, which perspective do you take? Do you focus on the size of the problem or do you focus on the size of your God? Do you, do you look at the things that you're facing when, when things go wrong at school or when someone is sick or when there are struggles with your family or your finances? Do, do you minimize God and allow your problems to be magnified? Or do you see that with every giant-sized problem, there is a God-sized solution to go with it? When we become afraid, it's easy to see things as bigger than they are. When I was a policeman in Dallas, uh, I would have to take reports from people who had been robbed. And when you go into a, a store or you, you come up to an individual that had been robbed, uh, often at gunpoint, I would say to the person, can you describe for me the person? Can you tell me something about? And, and they would usually begin with, well, he had a big gun. Okay, well, what, what kind of gun was it? Well, it was a big gun. It was, it was like looking down the barrel of a cannon, you know. Okay, was it a revolver? Was it a semi? It, it, it was a big gun. Okay, well, let's go somewhere else. How tall was he? Well, he had a big gun. Um, you know, and what would happen, and, and I understand that, they would focus 
on that barrel they were staring at. And what was often about the, the size of their pinky looked like they were staring down the barrel of a M1 Abrams tank. And that's all they saw. And, and as we look at the situation here, that's, that's what happened with the spies. The 10 of them, as they faced the problems, all they could see was the size of the enemy. This, this big barrel they were staring down instead of the God that was bigger than the giants. Look at verses 32 through 33. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land which we have gone out spying, the land that we have been spying out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. All of them? There was, there was just the one city with the, the family of giants, but suddenly everybody is enormous. There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. In, in 1990, I was assigned to work the uh, Cotton Bowl game where the University of Texas was playing the Oklahoma Sooners. And you all know I'm a Texas Longhorn. And because of that, my lieutenant thought it would be fun to have me guard the Sooner football team. So I got to spend the entire day going around with the Oklahoma Sooners here in Boomer Sooner and all this. I won't, I'll spare you all the, the agonizing details of that day. And I'll fast forward to the end of the game. I'm on the sidelines in the Cotton Bowl, and this is one of those good games that came down literally to the last play of the game. Texas was ahead 14, OU had 13. OU had driven down the field to what would be a chip shot field goal. I mean, the game was all but in the bag for the Sooners. And I'm standing there on the sideline watching their kicker warming up. And, and I had these thoughts come through my mind about, you know, if my baton were to strike his knee, what would, you know, no, I didn't do that. But I'm, I'm watching this kicker. And if you've ever watched a kicker warming up for, for what could be the game-winning points, you know they're usually sweating bullets and everybody's, you know, and, and they're, they're just in the zone. But this guy, he's kicked back on the bench. He's sitting there. And, and, and I'm thinking, shouldn't you be warming up? Finally, they, they position the ball. The last play is about to be set. And so he puts on his helmet. Coach calls him in. And he goes running out onto the field. And, and this guy, he starts kind of doing one of these. You know, it's in the bag. It's, you know, no worries. And he gets up. He lines up for the kick. It's a, it's a clean snap. The ball is set. And he shanks it. He misses the kick. Now, being the professional policeman I am, I... Contain my, uh, my glee as I'm standing amidst the OU football team. And the guy comes dragging in off the field. They lose the game. Texas wins 14 to 13. And we go to the locker room. And as we go to the locker room, everybody's kind of shuffling in. And my partner and I, we stand at the outside door to keep anybody from coming in that doesn't belong. And as we're standing there, we hear all this yelling and screaming going on. Well, suddenly the door is jerked open and one of the Sooner trainers comes running out and they said, come in here, you've got to help them, they're killing them. And so we run in, we're going, what is going on? And we see these six, seven, 300 plus linemen in full pads and helmets playing ping pong with the kicker, you know? 
they're kind of, and, and the guy's looking at me and he goes, help them. Well, I'm 6'4", and at the time I was over 200 pounds, and, and I'm looking at this guy, and I said, you know, he's doing pretty good, don't you think? <laughs> I didn't want to get in the middle of these giants who were all geared up, you know. All I had was a, a baton and a gun, and I couldn't use that against these guys. So I didn't want to get in the middle. Now, thankfully, the coaches got in there, and they rescued the guy and kind of pulled him out. But at that moment, I, I know what it's like to feel like a grasshopper. Even though I'm a pretty decent-sized guy, in the midst of them, I felt like a grasshopper. And, and that's what we see here. As we look at this passage in the spies that say they are giants and we are little grasshoppers, I want you to remember who these guys are, these 10 spies. They're not a bunch of wimps. Remember, the passage described them as being leaders. These were the, the leaders of each of the tribes. Their courage and their valor were already proven in battle for them to be chosen. If, if you look at Numbers chapter 1 and verses 45 through 16, it gives us a census of the fighting men. So you see just how elite these guys are. It says there were 603,550 men of war. And out of almost over 603,000 guys, 12 are chosen. These are the Navy SEALs of the group. To even accept this mission means they have to be courageous. They're going to go in behind enemy lines. They're, they're going to go in and spend 40 days in the midst of the enemy's territory. Moses in verse 20 said, make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. What, what the Hebrew text literally says is, Moses says, hazak. It literally translates, show yourself courageous. He says, show yourself courageous. He says, I know what you're doing is dangerous. Think about what they had to do to get some of the fruit of the land. Verse 20 said it was the beginning of the grape harvest. As you've read through the Old Testament, you've seen what would happen during harvest time. The fields were full of workers. There were guard towers there. There were, there were people that slept with the crops the, the field day and night was teeming with people. And on top of it, the enemy knew Israel was on the border. They would, have, they would have been looking for spies in the land. So these guys come in and they cut down a cluster of grapes. It's, you know, at least four or five feet in size. They, they can't low crawl through the bushes or trying to head out. It says they're walking upright, carrying the fruit. They're, they're out there in plain sight, traveling through the land. The enemy knew they were in the land. They were looking for them. I say all this today to remind us that these are men of courage. These are mighty men. But when they forgot about God, when they let their fear get bigger than their perspective of who God was and what he could do for them, they became like little grasshoppers. Does that happen to you? In those times where we get news of an illness, in those times where we face some tragedy, in those times where some situation is spiraling out of control, in those times where our children have, have become the prodigal son or daughter, do we become like little grasshoppers? And we say, I just can't handle this. It's too big for me. Do we forget about God in those times? 
whether we think of ourselves as being courageous, we're all going to face a situation at some time or another in our life where without faith, we will fail. And when the people forgot about God, uh, not only did their, their courage go away, but look at what happens in Numbers 14.1. It says, And all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. If you don't think that a negative spirit is catching, look at what this verse tells us. It spread through the whole assembly. The people were on the border. They were set to cross into the land. They've already had several major victories coming to this point. And suddenly everybody is weeping and crying and saying, we can't do it. Let's just go back to Egypt. These are the people of the Exodus. These are the people who have seen God's mighty works firsthand. They went through the Red Sea. They watched the Egyptian army perish. They're the ones that have been fed by God. They're the ones, remember, that have the the pillar of fire and the cloud leading them. They have a, a, a daily reminder of the presence of God and what they're eating in a visual. There he is. But now they turn on their leaders. Numbers 14, 2 through 4 tells us, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And, and why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. How quickly they've forgotten the sufferings of Egypt, right? Let's go back. It's got to be better than this. They've forgotten all that God has done for them. They say, God can't handle this problem. How many of us do that as well? How many of us become like the people of Israel? We, we face some situation and rather than going forward, we want to go back. And we say, you know, life was so much easier before I started walking with God. Before I started doing what God wanted me to do, work was easy. I didn't have problems at school. My marriage was okay. You know, let's just go back to the way things were. You know, next time you're tempted to grumble about what God hasn't done for you, I want you to remember Ephesians 2.12. Because in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Remember, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. It says before we became a believer in Jesus Christ, before we became Christians, before we turned our life over to the son of God, he says, remember what your destiny was. You were headed for hell. You were separate from God. You were not even as Gentiles a a part of the covenant promise that was given to Israel. It says we literally were up a creek without a paddle. We had no hope. But when we receive his son, Jesus Christ, he's given us not only the promise of new life in the future, but Jesus gave us the promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We've been given the promise of the Holy Spirit who indwells and seals us. As Christians, we have God's very presence living within us. 
We have his word that communicates all the things that God has done. We, we know more about God and his miraculous abilities and powers than the people of Israel who were living it at that moment because we've seen the totality of God's story, including the redemption that came through his son, Jesus Christ, as he came and he gave his life on the cross. So in those times where you face a problem that seems insurmountable, what God says is take your eyes off the problem and put them on me and recognize that I am big enough to handle it all. If you look at the first part of the book of Numbers, you'll you'll see that the grumbling that is going on here has been a constant. It's been going on through the whole uh, journey. And God finally says, you know, enough, enough. He says to them in Numbers 14 too, okay, you've just made a prophecy. You want it to be self-fulfilling? Great. You wanted to die in the wilderness? Then you will. And the children that you said would become plunder, your kids that you thought I couldn't take care of, guess what? They are the ones who will get to go in and see the land. But none of you, none of you who are 20 years of age or older, those who are adults, none of you get to experience the promise of the land. He says, you will get to wander in the wilderness one day, I mean one year for every day. How many days were they in the the land? Forty. Remember how many years they wandered in the wilderness? Forty years. And he says, all of you who are 20 and up, remember there were over 603,000 men alone. Multiply that and add an equal number of women. You've got, you've got, a million plus people who have to drop dead over the next 40 years before they get to come into the land. You do a little math, that averages out to about 100 people a day, 50 men, 50 women, roughly in there. So God says, uh, we're going to begin the process with these 10. It says a plague struck them and they dropped dead. Now imagine being Joshua and Caleb. You are the only guys of your generation that get to spend the 40 years and actually cross into the promised land, they're around 40, maybe even 45 at this point. Caleb is 45 at this point. And so he's looking around at all his buddies and he's thinking not one of them is going to get to come into the land. And so every single day you're reminded of that. There there are about 100 funerals a day taking place for 40 years. How would you like to be the last group of people around year 40? Everybody's standing around waiting for you to drop dead. We can't go in till you go out, you know. Well, there, there's Joshua and Caleb. Finally, the 40 years are up. And they return to the promised land. Now, I want you to turn over in your Bible to the uh, book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 14, because here's where the story picks up. We've heard the promise, we've seen what is happening, and in Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, we pick up the story. It says, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Joshua is the commander. Moses has died. Joshua is leading the nation. And, and Caleb says, Joshua, you and I are the only guys left. 
And he says, remember, remember what happened. He says, nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Now there is a statement to aspire to for all of us. I followed the Lord my God fully. Joshua 14, 9 through 10 goes on to say, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, the Lord has has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. Caleb had had walked throughout the entire promised land as a spy. Do you remember that? And so when Moses said, Caleb, your inheritance is you get to have a piece of the land you've walked on. What Caleb's saying is, I walked through the whole land. So I get to choose any piece as my inheritance. Now, if you were 85 years old and you were told you can have any piece of property in the entire United States, anywhere you want, what would you choose? You guys are going, whoa, this is great. Would it be a lake house with a fishing boat? Would, would it be a, maybe a ranch house in the hill country with a, a, a great vista view and, and, and hunting the rest of your days? Uh, maybe, you, maybe you want a place in the mountains. You might want something on the coast somewhere. If you could have anywhere that you could ever imagine or dream of, what piece of property would you pick out? Well, in Joshua 14, 11, we're told the piece of retirement property Caleb picks out. He says, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Now, whenever you see that I am ending to a word im, that's the S of the English language. That's plural. So when he says the Anakim are there, remember there were the three giants. They've had 45 years to multiply. They've been having kids and their kids have been having kids. So there's even more giants in the land than there was originally. Numbers 13.22 told us the three sons of Anak were there. Uh, Numbers 13.22 also said, Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Now that little side note, what that tells you is they've had 400 years to build up the fortifications of this city. You get the picture? Caleb says, uh, you, see, you see that citadel? Masada has nothing on this place. He says, there, there's that mountaintop fort, of fort and, and the giants are there. And he says, the piece of property I want is that one. It's fortified. It's the home to the biggest and the baddest warriors. This was the place that had made the people tremble in fear 40 years earlier. And Caleb says, give it to me. Caleb was not content to sit back and talk about all his old war stories. He could have said, you know, give me, give me that nice, quiet place and let the people go in and battle. But what Caleb said is, because of my faith, I, I'm ready to go out and fight some new battles. 
You know, friends, just because there's snow on the roof, it doesn't mean the fire in the heart has gone out, right? If you're somebody who's, who's lived a while, it doesn't mean it's time to sit back and coast. God's not done with you yet if you're still breathing. And we should be asking, what else does God have for me to do? You know, it's not just some of the senior saints that are trying to coast. I see it with those who are young as well. Friends, don't let your tombstone have an epitaph that says, died age 30, buried at age 75. God wants us living our lives until he calls us home. Billy Graham was once asked in an interview when he was going to retire. And Graham replied he had searched the Bible and he couldn't find an instance where a man of God had ever been retired. Graham went on to say, God retired them when he was finished with them. If you've been sitting on the sidelines today, whether you're 20 years old, 30 years old, 50, 70, 80, 90, even 100, God says, get back in the game. Joshua 14, 13 tells us, as Caleb makes the request, it says, so Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthah, for an inheritance. I love how that reads. Joshua gave Hebron to Caleb. Okay, Hebron's yours, Caleb. Go and enjoy it. Oh, yeah, did I mention you've got to evict the guys who were there in order to take it? He says it's yours. And with God's help, Caleb did do that. Because look at Joshua 14, 14. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, until this day because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Kiriath means the city of. So the city of Arba, the biggest, baddest guy, could have been renamed Kiriath Caleb, the city of Caleb, as a memorial to how big this guy, big and bad Caleb had been. But you know what he names the city? Hebron. Hebron is a word that means communion. Because he says, God met me there. God met me there and he showed himself faithful once again. As we come to a close today, I want you to go on a reconnaissance mission and spy out the land of your life today. You're going to do some of that this morning, but I want you to think about this as you get home today and maybe throughout this week and really think through this. I want you to remember the places where God showed himself faithful to you. I want you to sit down and and make a list of the places that God showed up that without him, you would have failed. The times in your life where God was faithful and he showed up in a mighty way in your life. Next, I want you to, to look at the obstacles in your life right now. I want you to think of the giants that you're facing today. And as you look at those giant sized problems, ask yourself if there is a God sized solution to it. Do you really believe that God is able and can handle what you're facing. Martin Luther once said, one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. No matter how big the giants are in your life, I want you to remember how big our God is. I want you to remind yourself that God is big enough to handle whatever it is you're facing. As you do, remember Caleb. Remember that Caleb had a part in the fight. He didn't just sit back and say, give it to me, God. God said, Caleb, you need to go and I'm going to go with you. So whatever it is you're facing today, God wants you involved in that. 
We're going to come to the communion table now. Our place of Hebron. Our place where God met us. And as we come to this table, we are reminded of the biggest battle any of us would ever face. The biggest problem any of us will ever have in our lives is what will be done with the problem of sin in our life. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. The word sin means we've made a mistake. We haven't been perfect. We've fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we have a problem. The penalty that goes with sin, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we owe for our sins are death. Eternal separation from God. But the verse goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The biggest problem we would ever face in our life is that of sin and the penalty of death that I owed and you owe for your sins. But the God-sized solution was that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he came and he gave his life on a cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he had to pay the penalty of death we owed. God is a loving and merciful God, but he is also a God of justice. And he says, this is a penalty owed and it has to be taken care of. And so he did it himself. By taking on flesh and blood and taking our place as he died on the cross. He gave that gift to us. As we come to this communion table, we're reminded of that great gift. Jesus instituted this for us at the Last Supper. It was the Passover meal that he was at with his disciples before he would go to the cross. And as they faced, uh, as Jesus faced what was coming, they were celebrating, remembering God's great deliverance from Egypt as the, the Passover reminded them of that final plague that set the people of Israel free and how the angel of death passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost of the home. And for you and I today, when we come to the communion table, it's a reminder to us that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist said in John one twenty nine, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He told the disciples as he took that cup, this is the cup of the new covenant. It represents my blood. His blood is what is applied to the doorpost of my heart and yours when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do so, death will pass over us as well and we will be welcomed home into heaven. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been trying to do it on your own and you've never turned to God and said, God, I'm a sinner and I recognize I have a problem, a problem only you can take care of, that of my sin, I invite you to do that today. To turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ and say to him, today, Jesus, I'm accepting your death in my place. I'm applying your blood to the doorpost of my heart so that that day of judgment, you will pass over me and instead I will be welcomed home as a part of your family into heaven. The men are going to pass the elements in a moment. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you belong to Wayside, we invite you to this table. This is an open table to all who know the Lord. If you've never come to faith and today you're ready, I invite you to take the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood and say to Jesus, today, God, this is what I'm placing my trust in. I'm accepting your death as the payment for my sins. I want you to hold those elements and we'll take them all together. Men, will you serve us, please?
we hold in our hands a piece of bread. As you look at it, it's, it's just a little square of, of uh, bread. It doesn't look like much. I want you to think about the problems you're facing today and how, how big they might look. And I want you to compare it to this. And I want you to think about how this tiny little piece of bread represents what God can do with that giant you're facing. Because this, this represents an infinite God, the creator of the universe, who came down to, to earth Philippians tells us about the mystery of the kenosis where God took on flesh and blood, where he he became like one of us, the creator became a part of the creation. And how he took on all the limitations of of this world as he veiled his, his deity. He was still fully God. It could have broken forth at any point. Remember as he was there going through the, the trial, I mean, as Peter lopped off the, the servants here in the garden, he said, Peter, put it away. I could, I could call down legions of angels in an instant. As, as he was on the cross suffering and people were mocking him, as the religious leaders walked by and said, if you're really God, come down off the cross and we'll believe you're who you say. I mean, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love. And the infinite God became a, a finite creature to deal with an infinite problem that none of us could handle, which was our sin. And this represents the God-sized solution to our sin, that he took on flesh and blood and he paid the penalty in full, satisfying the justice required while still demonstrating his great love and mercy. So as you think about what you're facing today, I want you to give it to God. I want you to, to know that he, he is able to handle whatever it is you're facing because this represents the biggest problem we would ever face in our life. And he took care of it through giving us the gift of his son, the body of Christ, he did in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. Again, it's... it's a tiny little thimble of grape juice. And we look at it and sometimes it loses its meaning. We look at it and we're like, what is this? It's almost like manna. What is it? And we forget the blessing that it represents in our life. We forget what this truly means. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sin. Blood had to be shed. Sacrifices had to be offered. Those that were offered in the temple were only temporary. They couldn't take away the penalty of sin. Only one, only one lamb could ever be offered that would remove the penalty of sin, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what this represents, the blood of Jesus who saved us, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, as we just linger in this moment, we want to say thank you. We want to thank you for your great love for us. Love that Romans 5, 8 says you demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, just as the, the people of the Exodus forgot who you were and all you had done, 
We didn't cross the Red Sea. We didn't watch Pharaoh get wiped out. We didn't see the plagues. And yet, God, we have something even bigger, even greater to look back on, that of the cross of Christ, knowing that you sent your son to take our place, to pay that penalty. And knowing, Lord, that he conquered sin and death as he didn't stay dead. But Jesus, you rose victoriously three days later from the tomb, showing that nothing, not even sin and death could hold you. So Lord God, whatever it is that people are facing this morning, whatever they've shared with you already or will share with you this week, would you help us, Lord, to take our eyes off our problem and to put them squarely on you and to remember, God, that you are big and you are capable. And beyond that, you've given us a promise the promise of Matthew where Jesus said, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And as you say that you will never leave us or forsake us, Father, would we hold on to those things as we go through the trials and the storms that are ahead. So send us out now, Lord, with your peace, with your presence, and help us to share the good news of all that you've done. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need prayer, there are prayer leaders here at the front who would love to help you and uphold your burden with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.